you have found a podcast from the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. Our speaker today is Dr. Andrew Boacci, and he will be speaking primarily from Luke chapter 4. We hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. Thank you very much, Malcolm. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Just give me a quick thumbs up. Fantastic. It is an absolute joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's great to see the faces of a good few people that I recognize, and it's going to be great to get to know a few people that I don't know as well. Uh, but thank you so much for having us um, with you today in your service. It's great to be with you. I know the term with you kind of feels slightly metaphorical under the current circumstances, um, but it's, it's great to see you all, even to see you uh, virtually. Um, as um, Obi mentioned, um, I'm someone who tends to think in terms of stories. Um, I love the idea of, of grand narratives, especially when those grand narratives interlock. And we're all a part of some story. We all have a story, a story of our lives and where we were born and how we were brought up and all that sort of thing. Um, but there's one story which, of course, we're all a part of. This is a story which began with God creating the world and interacting with the very first humans. It's a story that reached its high point in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's a story that continues to play out and will continue to play out until the Lord returns. Um, and we are a part of that story. We're a central part of that story. Jesus has made us a part of that story. And today, as we look at some things in Luke chapter four, I want us to get a sense of our place in that story and particularly to think about how it relates uh, to our current circumstances. So I hope this will be uh, meaningful. I hope uh, there'll be uh, something that you can engage with. So if you want to read along with me, please turn to Luke chapter four. Now, for some reason, and I think this is a universal truth, people hate taking instructions uh, from the people that are closest to them. I don't know if you've noticed that. My daughter, who is uh, 15, going on 36, loves to point out my faults. And for some reason, it's really hard to hear from her. The other day, she accused me of being insensitive. And I thought, me? Insensitive? How dare she? Uh, my, my wife has managed to master the art of telling me something that I need to know almost without me knowing that I've been told. And it sort of takes a few minutes and after that I think, I've just been told off. I've just been challenged about something. But at the time it feels so nice and so pleasant. But there is something there to think about. Why is it that we, we find it so hard to take instruction or to take challenge or criticism from the people that are closest to us? Why? Well, because only in his own home is a prophet without honour, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, the great philosopher Plato once told a story of a group of people who lived in a cave and behind the people was a fire and objects were passing by the fire. They couldn't see it. All they could see was the wall in front of them and the shadows that the objects passing the fire were making. And the people had become so conditioned to just staring at the wall that they were convinced that these shadows were actually the real objects. Then one day, one of the cave dwellers left the cave and for the first time saw objects as they really are. He saw them by the light of the sun and couldn't wait to run back into the cave and tell everyone that what you're looking at actually are shadows. They're not the real thing. The real thing, the real substances are actually outside the cave. He ran back to tell everyone 
Um, and at first they laughed and they ridiculed him. Then they turned upon him and they killed him. Now for Plato, this parable was all about the dangers of telling the truth to people who simply aren't willing to hear it. Even it just amongst your own, amongst your own kind, that's where it's hardest uh, to speak the truth. And sometimes telling the truth to people who are so hopelessly attached to their own uh, conventions uh, and systems that they not only fear the truth, they end up despising anyone that tells the truth. Now that story was most likely um, a sort of parable about his mentor, Socrates, who had recently been executed for daring to criticize Athenian democracy. But it could easily have been a story about Jesus. When Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth in Luke 4, he wasn't given a hero's welcome at all. Instead, people were deeply suspicious of him. We know this Jesus. We've grown up with him. We've seen him walking our streets. And now he's here claiming to be a prophet, claiming to speak on behalf of God. And there was deep, deep suspicion. He's doing these strange things in Capernaum. He's healing people. He's exorcising demons. He's talking to and hanging around with all kinds of socially marginalized riffraff. Who on earth is this Jesus? Who does he think he is? That was the kind of reception that Jesus got. And they were thinking, what on earth could this Jesus be doing? Luke chapter 4, I'll read from verses 14 to verse 30. Uh, Jesus has just returned from the time he was tested by the accuser, the Satan, in the desert. And we read in Luke 4, in verse 14 and following. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the whole land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Jesus has just spent time in the wilderness being tempted by the Satan. And of course, Israel spent 40 years 
in the desert, testing and tempting God with their demands. Now Jesus goes back to the place where Israel tested God, and he himself was tested by the accuser. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us this enigmatic story of Jesus not being in the wilderness for 40 years, but for 40 days. He goes back to the place of Israel's failures, the place where Israel tested and tempted God, and there he confronted uh, the adversary once more. Jesus did this, of course, to symbolically take on the yoke of Israel. This was Jesus uh, going back to the place of Israel's failure, going back as God's son to be uh, the, the successful son of God. In uh, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Israel herself is described as the son of God. Only this son of God, Israel, had failed in the desert. They had tested and tempted God. And yet the true son of God, who had to embody everything that Israel was supposed to be for the world, went back to that place of testing, back to that place of Israel's failure to succeed as son of God, where Israel herself had failed so miserably. And is this not the very Jesus who we always meet in our lives? He doesn't wait for us to be intact for, to come to us. Jesus is the one who finds us when we are broken, and lost and sometimes frustrated and sometimes even despairing. And I think it's true for believing and unbelieving people. Sometimes we put distance between ourselves and Jesus because we don't consider ourselves spiritual enough. And yet Jesus went back to that place of Israel's failure and that's exactly what he does for us all. He comes to us at that moment of failure and difficulty. He hunts out sinners, not the righteous. He looks for the sick not the healthy. He leaves the 99 to run to those who are hurting. If you're someone today who thinks to yourself, I'm in bad shape spiritually, then you are in perfect shape to be an audience for Jesus. So Jesus comes to Nazareth and he's preaching here in his hometown. Remember, he knows these streets, he knows these people. He's in the synagogue and he takes out the scroll, the book of Isaiah the prophet, and he reads this quotation, this wonderful quotation where uh, Isaiah is talking about the freedom of God's people who are in captivity uh, in Babylon. And he ends this quotation with talking about the, the favorable year of the Lord that uh, Isaiah is um, making recollection of. And this year of the Lord, it has its origins in Israel's system of jubilee, which we read about in Leviticus 25 through 27. And every 49 years was a jubilee year um, in Israel. Um, and freedom would be proclaimed throughout the land. Slaves would be set free. Property that was held would be given back to the people who originally owned it. Debtors would be freed of their financial obligations. And there was a great sense amongst the people of things being put right during a jubilee. And here in Isaiah 61, as Jesus quotes, um, Isaiah is, is pointing to a favorable year of the Lord, a new jubilee, a new time of freedom, when Israel would be freed from her captivity um, under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian hordes. It was a, a new time of putting things right. And Jesus is, of course, using that prophecy to suggest that an even newer and even greater renewal was about to come upon Israel, that a new kind of freedom, one they had never experienced before, one that Jesus called the kingdom of God. 
And so when Jesus finished reciting that prophecy, he said that scripture, that, that great freedom and renewal that Isaiah spoke of, today you're going to see that uh, scripture come to its fulfillment in your lives. And everyone in this Nazarene synagogue heard these great things coming from Jesus. This was a time of renewal and, uh, and, and restoration that Israel had been waiting for. God was about to put all the world's wrongs to right and restore balance to the world, free any captives and open the doorway to a brand new way of being. This was the kingdom of God that Jesus had been talking about throughout his public ministry. This was the vision of the world where God was king. Try to imagine if Jesus was prime minister instead of Bojo. That would be the kingdom of God. And this was the thing that Jesus was preaching. This was the true kingdom and the true kingship. And it would show up all other kinds of kingship from Herod to Caesar to be an absolute sham. True kingship was about to be seen as God came uh, truly into power through Jesus's ministry. This was what Isaiah was pointing to. This is what Jesus picks up on um, as he preaches from Isaiah 61 to preach the real end of the exile. And this was something many Jews of Jesus's day believed. The exile didn't end when Israel had been freed from Babylon. It may have ended physically, but spiritually, emotionally, and socially, as long as the people were being ruled by pagans in their minds and in their consciousness, they were still in exile. But the true exile, the true end of the exile, the true restoration wouldn't come when people were geographically free from captivity in Babylon, but when they were spiritually free from the captivity to sin and death and darkness. What's interesting here, however, is that Jesus left out the very last line of Isaiah's prophecy. He ended it by talking about the favorable day of the Lord. But actually, the prophecy reads, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah promised not only good news to the afflicted and to the poor and comfort for the hurting and freedom for, uh, for Israel from their enslavement in Babylon, but he promised a day of vengeance on Israel's enemies. Babylon and every Gentile that had ever oppressed God's people would face vengeance. So if God was spearheading this new um, thing, this, this renewed restoration, this new thing through Jesus, well then the Jews were expecting that day of vengeance. They didn't want to be cheated of their day of vengeance. And of course, the Gentiles that were ruling them now were the people of Rome. And there were many in Israel who were expecting a Messiah to lead that day of vengeance, to lead that charge. They wanted that day of vengeance against all the people who had oppressed uh, Israel. And that's why we read in Luke 4.22 that people were wondering at the gracious words falling from his lips. Why was Jesus just talking about grace? Why hasn't Jesus quoted that passage about vengeance? Jesus is recalling this prophecy about Israel being freed from captivity and yet only spoke in glowing and gracious terms about freedom and um, newness and about the hurting being healed. What about the punishment on the Gentiles who had done this to us in the first place? What about the punishment that was due to Babylon and now was due to Rome? 
So when Jesus starts talking about this scripture being fulfilled in your hearing today, of course, what the Jews were waiting for was, well, when's the day of vengeance going to come? And this, of course, just made the people even more curious. Now, that word today, the, the scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing today, kind of resonates all throughout Luke's gospel. Now, Israel had waited for her Messiah to appear. And we're told in Luke 2.11, where Jesus was born, the, the angel announces, today in the city of David, there has been born for you a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Israel had awaited um, divine rescue uh, and comfort and healing. And in Luke 19, when Jesus is speaking with the dodgy tax collector Zacchaeus, in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And even when Jesus was on the cross and next to him, uh, a convicted terrorist was on another cross and begged Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And behind all of these formulations, I hear Jesus saying, I know that your waiting and your patience matters to me. And sometimes waiting can feel awful. There have been um, you know, right now, the entire country is sort of waiting in many ways with bated breath for when the uh, restrictions and lockdown restrictions and protocol uh, will be lifted and we can start to move about more freely again. There are some people, I, I sort of heard it from a page as she was uh, sharing in the welcome, there are some people waiting with eager expectation for schools to be reopened uh, and for uh, their, their kids to go back. I've heard of parents who are practically on the verge of putting their kids up for adoption. They're so fed up of hearing the demands, um, Daddy, I need this, and Mummy, I need that. I tell you, it really makes you, if anything, it really makes you uh, appreciate school teachers. There have been some incredibly encouraging stories, as um, again, as Obi and Peju mentioned, of people um, who've been patiently waiting to hear about the fate of loved ones who have been struck down with the uh, coronavirus. There's even been a couple of disciples who, uh, one of whom was practically on the verge of death um, and yet miraculously recovered. And it's super encouraging to hear those stories. Sometimes when we're waiting for something, it ends with great joy. Um, yesterday, my best friend in the whole world um, a great brother called Joe Clark, lost his wife to cancer. Sometimes the wait ends in pain. But when Jesus announces today something will happen, he acknowledges how difficult that waiting can be. But he waits with us patiently. And in that time of patience, in that time of waiting, He's preparing us for whatever lies around the corner. You know, there have been few things in my life that have taught me the need for patience, like trying to raise an autistic son. I have been 
in many ways forced to learn patience in ways uh, that I could never have learned otherwise. There have been times when I, I've known that he's, he's, he's about to have a bad turn. And that moment of waiting, knowing that something awful is about to happen, and sometimes it has been awful, um, it's just sometimes the worst feeling in the world. And yet somehow I've had to train myself to know that that patience and that waiting, that in that time, in that moment, Jesus is waiting with me. Um, my wife explains this far better than I can. So I'm actually going to let her um, explain this to you briefly. Try not to smash the place in the process. I think, I think for me, um, waiting, I've, I've, I've always been waiting for the miracle that I have always felt God owes me, you know, which is basically to um, take away the worst aspects of my son's condition, which, you know, range from kicking and hitting and biting and lunging. And because so often it's so unpredictable, um, it can be terrifying and it can be um, distressing for all of us. And over the years, you know, as I've waited, because in my mind, I'm, I'm walking with you, God, what's taking you so long? Why isn't this changing? And it, it has, you know, my emotions have ranged from, God, how dare you treat me like this? Why, you know, why, is, you know, why am I the worst person? You know, why is this such a, um, a bad situation to, okay, God, this is not as bad as I had thought it would be. You're quite comforting in certain situations to being desperate and searching the scriptures and actually feeling so moved and just encouraged by what the scriptures tell me to, I can't actually do without having my time with God, to, I don't even trust my own mind if I don't have my time with God, to, wow, I do think I understand what it even means to consider it pure joy when I face trials that I'm going through. And so the waiting has almost become, it's almost been transformed into being grateful that I've you know, been brought into this world to even have an encounter with a God who is so incredible and awesome and has changed me all because of what I'm going through. And basically, in, um, I just feel, yeah. The, but the analogy I wanted to use was an analogy about um, marathons. I don't know whether you've ever heard this analogy, but so say someone comes to your house and they, they point a gun at your head and they say, you are going to run a marathon today, 26 miles, whether you like it or not. And so you run that marathon and you literally splutter as you go and you are like hating every second of it and it's the worst thing in the world. And it's like, I'm not going to get to the end, but eventually you get to the end. And as you look back, you think, I hate every second of that marathon. Or 
you can have, it can be totally different in that you decide, you decide, I would like to run a marathon. So you prepare, you know, you make sure you eat the right kinds of foods, you make sure that you, um, you know, you dress in the right type of gear and you, you, you practice and, and then you actually run the marathon and the marathon is like a breeze. And of course, there are times when it's difficult, but then you get through it. And you look back and you think, because I prepared, because I was, you know, I, you know, I spent time making sure that I was prepared, I was able to run that marathon. And, and basically, this is an analogy that I use just um, basically to how, what my son's condition has taught me. I told you she could explain it better than I could. Um, whether that period of waiting ends in joy or tears, when Jesus says today, he acknowledges that that period of waiting is over and wants us to know that he's always with us while we wait. So be patient. The Jews in the synagogue were astounded at what Jesus was saying. They were astounded at his declaration and yet things were about to take something of a sinister turn. And as usual, Jesus knew what his audience was thinking. They were thinking, physician, Heal yourself. Whatever was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus replies, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. In other words, the crowds were not going to believe that this was really a prophet. If he could say all that stuff from Isaiah, but leave out the bit about vengeance on Israel's enemies. No real prophet would do that. And so if you're really a prophet, show us some miracles. Then we'll believe that you're a prophet. And instead, Jesus does something completely different. He ends up reinforcing the notion that God was ultimately not just summoning Israel, but summoning all the peoples of the world with two very provocative ideas. In verses 25 and 26 here, he recalls the story of Elijah from 1 Kings 17. Elijah could have gone to any number of Jewish widows in Israel during this terrible famine where people were starving for three and a half years. And yet who was Elijah sent to? A Gentile, a foreigner from Zarephath. Then in verse 27, he tells an even more challenging story. Elisha could have gone to any number of lepers in Israel. Who did God send him to? A Syrian. The Jews of Jesus' day hated the Syrians. And it was a lingering memory in the minds of Jews of Jesus' day about 160 years before Jesus, a Syrian king, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, which means manifestation. Antiochus thought he was a manifestation of God. And he was one of the, the, the generals, you know, following the collapse of Alexander, Alexander the Great's empire. And Antiochus had tried to enforce Greek culture and Greek philosophy on the Jews. He effectively tried to eradicate Judaism. He was trying to ban the kosher rules. He was forcing Jews to eat pork. He was even, they, they had pioneered a, 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 a technique called epispasm by which you could partially reverse circumcision. Um, he even sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple. And it wasn't until the Maccabean family, if you've heard of the books of first and second Maccabees, that's, it, it's this story that it, it's all about. It wasn't, until the Maccabean family tried to resist Antiochus, that Judaism um, was effectively rescued. But 
Antiochus was a Syrian. And for generations, Jews, every time the, 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 the thought of Syria came up, they would remember this awful, very bloody three-year war that, that, that lasted as Antiochus tried to wipe Judaism out. And what does Jesus do? He comes and tells a story of God acting. Who did God send Elisha to, to cure of leprosy? He sent him to Naaman, the Syrian. And of course, in verse 28, their reaction is fairly predictable. They are furious. Jesus hadn't mentioned the vengeance clause from Isaiah's prophecy because God's judgment wasn't just going to come upon Israel's enemies, but on Israel herself. And now with these two stories of Elijah and Elisha being sent to the aid, not only of foreigners and Gentiles, but enemies of Israel, Jesus appears to be saying the unthinkable, this great renewal, this great divine intervention, the kingdom of God, this great divine movement, which was going to free the captives and liberate the oppressed and help the blind to see it wasn't just for the Jews. You mean God was opening the door to foreigners, opening the door to Israel's hated enemies, that this great jubilee, this year of the Lord's favor was favor to everybody, irrespective of their ethnicity. How on earth could the Jews of the first century have misread God's ideas and God's plan so hopelessly? You know, if there's one thing that I've practically given up on these days, it's trying to guess where God is going. If anyone said to me at the end of 2019 that a virus was going to claim the lives of nearly a quarter of a million people and going to cause people across the globe to be locked in their houses for an indefinite period, I would never have believed it. But rather than trying to guess where God is going these days, I'm just trying to be committed to taking ownership of whatever God is showing me whether that's something I expect or whether it's something that I don't, and it's usually something that I don't. You know, if there's anything the last couple of months have shown us, it's that discipleship to Christ needs to be resourceful and creative. You know, unbelievers who would never have contemplated what it means to walk with God have now been given ample time, time to think about exactly that. Unbelievers who would never have set foot in a church um, are making time to join online church services. If there was ever a time when it really mattered that we used our gifts creatively for the work of God, now is that time. We pray our prayers fervently, begging God like the persistent widow for the things that we need, but we must remain open um, to what God is doing. We must remain open to the idea that God can take us into completely uncharted territories, into new situations and down fairly unpredictable pathways. No Jew in a million years would have thought that God was gonna open the door to Samaritans and Syrians and place them on equal footing with Israel within the thing that he was doing. And yet, to quote John the Baptist, no one should get complacent about being children of Abraham, for God can take rocks and pebbles and raise up children for Abraham. And nor should we as God's people simply assume that we know how God is moving and how he's going to redeem the world. Rather, as a community, we ought to ask with ever-increasing passion and ever-increasing commitment, what has God instilled in me that he will use to prepare this world for the return 
of his son. God may have instilled in you something that doesn't even feel very uh, religious or spiritual. And sometimes it's precisely those things. And it's in the pursuit of that passion that God's instilled in you, that you can actually um, be uh, the most effective witness to an unbelieving world. No one can tell you what that thing is. That's something that you must discover as you walk with God. But the very purpose of us being a family together is that we can collectively fan into flame that very passion and make uh, and do things for God and bring glory to God. Three things then simply to recap. Firstly, you don't need to be spiritually intact or emotionally intact to be an audience for Jesus. Jesus meets us um, and seeks us uh, in the midst of trouble, of confusion, of despair. Um, if that describes you today, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. Secondly, Jesus is present in our patience. He knows how difficult waiting can be, especially uh, when we're in the dark about potential outcomes. So often we seek certainty in this life when really the thing we ought to be seeking is trust. We can't be certain that we can trust. And thirdly and finally, let's not be presumptuous about God's movements. Rather, let's commit to being both resourceful and responsible and creative in our discipleship so that whatever God shows us, we are ready for action. I hope there was something there that you could uh, connect with and engage with. Thank you all uh, for listening. Uh, I really hope that this uh, blesses you. Uh, and I hope that whilst we are waiting and in this period of lockdown, that we're waiting knowing that Jesus waits with us and whatever lies around the corner, there will ultimately be victory. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church or about our events, then please do check us out online. All the W's then tvcoc.org. You should find there what you need. If not, do send us an email via the website and we'll get back to you. Until the next time, take care and God bless.